Welcome to Talking All Things Cardiopalm. I am your host, Dr. Rachel Barisi, physical therapist and board-certified cardiopulmonary clinical specialist. This podcast is designed to discuss heart and lung conditions, treatment interventions, research, current trends, expert opinions, and patient experiences. The goal is to learn, inspire, and bring cardiopalm to the forefront of conversation. Thanks for joining me today, and let's get after it. Hello, hello, and welcome to Talking All Things Cardiopalm. I am your host, Dr. Rachel Barisi. Our episode today is sponsored by Jane, an all-in-one practice management software. The team at Jane recognizes how hard you work to support your patients or clients, and they aim to do the same for you. That's why Jane offers unlimited phone, email, and live chat support with every subscription. First, we recommend booking a personalized one-on-one demo with a member of their team. It's a great way to make sure Jane will be the right fit for you and your practice and to see Jane's features in action. And Jane even offers a free data import, an account setup consultation, and online training tools to help set you up for success. To get started, head over to jane.app backslash start. Their team would love to connect with you to see how Jane could help you and your practice. You can also use Cardial Palm 1MO at the time of sign up for a one month grace period applied to your new account. Thanks again, Jane. All right, so I wanted to try uh, something a little bit different. Um, I'm thinking about throwing in a case, um, something that is either super applicable to cardial palm or something that's been interesting or just maybe how to approach uh, different topics in the acute care setting and maybe how to apply that in other settings. Um, So I had this gentleman a couple of months back and he, first of all, one of my favorite patients that I've seen in a long time. And I think it was because of all the things I was able to do to help this man get home safely and then give him a plan. And it just, you know, those moments where you can kind of reiterate the knowledge that you have, the skills that you have, and how you can impact another human, um, that sometimes it hits you. And so this, this gentleman was, he was awesome. Um, and I spent some time with him and I think it was worth it. So I'll go through his case, give you a little synopsis and then talk about the things that I did with him and in the education that I provided. Uh, so I have a 72 year old male with a past medical history of hypertension, diabetes, type two COPD. Um, and I said it with a question mark because he doesn't have known PFTs on file, but he is on COPD inhalers. Um, he had a recent PE in September of 2022. So that was about six months to a year out at the time that I saw this gentleman. And there was question of whether he has a chronic pulmonary hypertension type syndrome. It was a little bit wishy-washy in the notes. Uh, they use some unorthodox terms to describe pulmonary hypertension, uh, but it seems to be a potential future diagnosis for him. I had to dig a little bit, and I'm glad I came across it because this was not apparent in his most recent documents, but he had a history of traumatic right hip amputation about 40 years ago. Um, so always good to get that in the chart review before walking in. Um, Because then I have some follow-up questions, too, about how he's been managing his amputation for this amount of time. Um, Likely a prosthetic candidate if if it's this many years old, but he's also 72 now. 
And sometimes ambulatory status, even if they were independent with a prosthetic at one point, might not be any longer. So this gentleman is a primary VA patient who is being seen in a different hospital for an acute issue. So his admitting diagnosis is acute respiratory failure with hypoxia currently on two liters of nasal cannula. Um, He did not have a history of O2 wear at home, um, even at night. And so sometimes you'll see that where you have a patient who has COPD and might be on CPAP at night, and they might be infusing oxygen and only require that uh, for the evening. He didn't have true SpO2 orders. It was just the standard greater than 90%. Um, So from my understanding, not necessarily a CO2 retainer. Uh, When you have your patients who are emphysema, COPD, um, CO2 retainers, sometimes you get more tight window on SpO2 goal, like 88 to 92%. um, And other times you don't. So If you have that tight window, you do have to be careful about over-oxygenating that patient because you can basically decrease the hypoxic drive to breathe. Meaning when you are a CO2 retainer, you are chronically high CO2. Your CO2 receptors are usually the second to second um, collaborating kind of I'm sorry, calibrating. Wow, that word didn't sound right when it came out. Calibrating your system. And so once your CO2 retainer or CO2 receptors are always high, they're not doing their job the way that they're supposed to. So now you have to rely on oxygen. And oxygen does not adjust respiratory rate or any of those things until we're at a PaO2 of less than 60. So that's a 90 SpO2 less than 90%. So the reason why you don't want to give that patient too much oxygen is because if you over-oxygenate them greater than 90%, then their O2 receptors can't do the adjusting. So hopefully that wasn't too left field, um, but that's why patients with COPD have to have potentially tight SpO2 windows. So he was a bit tachycardic in the physician note. It was stated that it could be possibly due to his inhalers. Um, But the other big piece was that he had um, increased weight gain. So lots of things happening with this guy. We have, you know, the common triad, we have hypertension, diabetes. Um, We have this history of PE that might be causing a pulmonary hypertension type deal. He has COPD, but it's not well-documented. Is it emphysema? Is it chronic bronchitis? Um, Being a patient from the VA makes me think likely emphysema based on his age, could be a Vietnam vet, uh, lots of history with Agent Orange, and Agent Orange causes havoc to the system, but very prominent emphysema in these patients, as well as um, the history of smoking in many veterans in this time period. So very um, high probability of that never on oxygen previously, but now also has this increased weight gain. So sounds like we have potentially some heart failure component superimposed on already existing emphysema. Plus he has this right lower extremity amputation, which is actually a really big piece to all this. Even though the amputation was 40 years ago, we have to understand the implications of what that means. So if he is a right above knee amputation. And because it was a 
traumatic hip amputation. It was actually a very high amputation. Um, he did have a prosthetic. He did still wear it for transfers only. Uh, he has been not ambulatory for about five years at this point, and the limiting factor was shortness of breath. When you have a prosthetic, you have a significant increase in energy expenditure compared to an able-to-bodied ambulator. So a percent that um, I see in research is 49 to 65% increase in energy consumption at half the walking speed of an able-bodied subject. So 65% increase in energy consumption. So now you have to kind of think about the whole picture. We have a patient with emphysema. We have a patient with potential heart failure. We have a patient, a patient with potential pulmonary hypertension, all of which have an energy consumption issue, right? We have a possible decrease in gas exchange. We have pot potential vasoconstriction in the lungs causing a backup on the right side. So for this gentleman, because he had this increased weight gain, he could not fit into his prosthetic on this date. So he had his prosthetic in the room. We did try, uh, we put his shrinker on, we put his liners on, and he, with the smallest liner, could not fit. So, um, you know, just one piece of the puzzle, don't put that prosthetic on if you don't have a good fit because you can end up with a wound and then cause another sequelae of events that, you know, is just going to lead to more uh, debility. But what that now means is his normal transfer technique of stand pivot with the prosthetic in place is not a possibility. So um, before even getting to the edge of the bed and we're kind of getting to know each other a bit and his normal techniques, right? Um, taking vitals, assessing left lower extremity strength, able to fully straight leg raise, able to perform heel side, like good active motion on that left lower extremity, which is really important. Um, checking straight leg raise is probably one of my like go-to tricks to know how a sit to stand is going to go. Um, it's a trick I started using when I was in the recovery room. Uh, treating patients post-up day zero, just coming out of spinal anesthesia. And if they could not straight leg raise their non-involved side, there's no chance of performing a to stand. So that just gives you a ton of information. There was actually a study that just came out on this exact thing. I'll have to pull it. Maybe we'll talk about it because um, I really do think it's just a trick of the trade, something so easy to do that can really give you a lot of information in the moment. And again, I started with simple bed therex, not just to see his vital sign response and his oxygen response to two liters, which is what I was doing, but I was also getting a good picture of his strength and his ability. Was I going to need to get a slide board, um, which he did not have? And I was actually surprised by the equipment and not equipment that was available for him um, because a lot of patients who are veterans do have access to good um, support. So his wheelchair uh, needed to be updated. He no longer fit well into the chair and we discussed what that might look like in regards to getting refit at the VA. Um, his prosthetic was a bit older, but he was only using it for transfers and at this moment was non-functional because of his weight gain. Um, he never used slide boards. And I was very surprised by this, especially with just uh, 
transfers like from wheelchair to car and such. So, you know, he's been doing this for 40 years. He was pretty confident. And so in these moments, I usually ask the patient, how do you do X, Y, Z? How do you normally get to the edge of the bed? How do you normally transfer to your chair? How do you normally get into your car? Do you have hand controls for your vehicle? Which he did. Um, <clears throat> you know, at home, he had grab bars, uh, elevated toilet, um, roll-in shower. So he was from a transfer to home and set up. That was not my big concern. The big concern for this gentleman is that he is now requiring two liters of oxygen at rest. And we need to understand that wheeling a wheelchair with bilateral upper extremity is going to have impact on energy consumption. Transferring now without his prosthetic is going to be an increased energy consumption. And anytime we're doing something that's going to require a higher metabolic cost, we have to understand that that's going to play a toll on oxygen if we're requiring it at rest. Um, so we really got into it. We did a full chest exam, um, which is always just fun for me, especially because I'm educating at the same time and, um, you know, had really decreased lateral costal movement. He was had a barrel chest. He had some diaphragm excursion. Um, as soon as we did a sniff technique, his oxygen just popped right up. Um, we, I taught him how to do purse breathing. And same thing. As soon as he was able to extend his exhale, his oxygen just, he shot up to nearly 100% and was staying there. Um, and so I had asked if he had ever done pulmonary re rehab before, and he said no. And I asked if he's ever learned how to personal breathe before, and he said no. And so those things always surprise me because they're very basic type breathing exercises and very well known um, kind of across the board. So we did a lot of education and I took my time with him and I was like ready to down titrate. So um, I kept him at two until we practice our transfers because I wanted to see what that energy um, cost was going to do for him. And so his oxygen actually stayed pretty good. Um, so just for reference, he was at about 92, 93% when I came in the room on two liters. When we did any type of breathing exercises, he popped up to about 98%. Um, so and was maintaining. But um, we did, and I'll give you just like a starting blood pressure. Um, he was resting at 152 over 71 with a heart rate of 88, SPO2 of 93% on two liters. Like I said, he increased quite a bit when we added breathing exercise in, into the mix. And then we started uh, practicing transfer. So pretty much let him do the first one on his own. Um, it wasn't very clean. So I spun the chair around and practiced going the other way. Um, and it was a, a bit better, but you know, the bed's a little bit cushiony. So we actually did two transfers. We went from bed to chair, chair to bed, and then we did it one more time. Reassess blood pressure and his blood pressure increased to 179 over 82 heart rate 98 to 106, and his SpO2 stayed about 94%. So clearly when we got back in the chair, um, needed to kind of bring the system back to a resting level. We practice our breathing again. Um, oxygen was great. 
um, blood pressure came back down and maybe a little bit more than starting. So uh, it was 143 over 82, heart rate of 91 and an SpO2 of 98%. So while we're practicing breathing, um, I actually had him do seated therex with paired breathing and his sats were staying great. So I dropped him to 1.5 and he was staying good at 1.5. So part of the order set was that he needed an exercise oxygen assessment because he was going to be going home today or tomorrow and they needed to know if he required oxygen to return home. So then we did the whole thing. Um, I had him wheel down um, the hallway was about 100, 150 feet. And we did intervals of this and I titrated his oxygen throughout. So we started at 1.5, not two, because he was maintaining well. After the 150 feet of wheelchair um, pushing, he was actually decent blood pressure response, 161 over 88. So maybe a touch exaggerated, but I, like I said, it's a higher energy cost. And if you listen to last week's episode, um, use of your upper extremity typically has a more exaggerated heart rate blood pressure response because the muscle mass is smaller and smaller vessels. Oxygen stayed great. He was at 95% when we were immediately finished and he popped back up to 98% with just a little recovery per slip breathing. So then we tried on one liter, same exact distance. Um, and at one liter, he dropped 92 to 94%. Uh, heart rate 97 and popped right back up to 98% with rest. And because the goal was to see if he can maintain on room air, we did try one time on room air uh, just for just uh, practice management piece. I had a pole socks on him at the start um, and I was not able to get a consistent read while he was pushing. So it was the same distance and then re reassessed immediately when he was done pushing. I did try to keep it on uh, for the first, but he, there was too much motion. So it was just uh, inefficient for him to have it on. So it was pre and post each time. Um, and cues, right? We were queuing for pacing with his wheelchair pushing and he was doing great. Um, it was like, you know, having a, a key to something to help you for long-term success. And he was like really excited about having that information and was doing all the things. Um, so we went to room air while he was resting just to see if he could maintain. And he maintained at 97% on room air. And I had him there for a little bit just to make sure he didn't have a delayed drop because uh, that is a commonality that happens with patients with pulmonary hypertension. Um, and so he was good. So we did the same exact distance. When we ended the 150 feet, he was between 91 and 89% and again, was able to recover to 97%. But as soon as he went back into quiet breathing, he was dropping back down to that low 90, 90, 92. Um, so that one 1 1.5 liters was like his sweet spot with exercise, but he was likely going to be able to go room air to one liter at rest. And so we also did a lot of education on pulse ox. Do you have a pulse ox? Can you obtain a pulse ox? This is what you want to do. These are the numbers that we're going to confirm with your physician. 
If you are below your standard, that is the time to either put on your oxygen or up titrate to the level that we discussed. Um, and so that's just really important because uh, patients go home with oxygen and although they are educated on it, I, I think sometimes not as much as we expect. Um, I had another patient that I saw from a mobile PT perspective and they dropped the concentrator off and basically didn't give any in-person information while the machine was there. They gave him a manual and it was basically like Amazon drops off your package. Um, and that was surprising to me because, and this is a different patient, um, the machine that he was provided with did not allow for the amount of oxygen that he needed. And I, he didn't know until, you know, there was a provider in his house giving that education. So I think any time, even if it's doubling up on education, the more a person, a patient, client can hear the information, the more it's going to stick and the more they're going to be able to understand it, right? We have gone to school for X number of years learning about these diagnoses. I know myself, I'm always learning something new or relearn something. So this is the first time that they're hearing it while they're in an acute state, while they're short of breath, while they're in pain, whatever the situation is. Um, sometimes it takes a little bit of repeating to really make it stick or for them to, to understand it. So don't be afraid to over-educate and don't be afraid to give your patient the knowledge that they need to be successful long-term. So just to recap, wait a patient with uh, COPD, possible pulmonary hypertension with a potential heart failure situation. Um, there was no BNP on file. He did have increased weight gain, increased shortness of breath, hypoxia, requiring new oxygen of two liters. He was also in um, a previous above knee amputation. And so all of these pieces are not separate, right? They're all superimposed on each other to make this whole patient. And you cannot ignore these pieces and you cannot treat them in a silo. You have to treat the whole person. And so doing a full chest exam, auscultating, chest wall assessment, diaphragm assessment, following that up with appropriate interventions that match the findings. We did a little bit of lateral costal breathing to see if he could engage his lower ribs. We practiced sniffing because he was able to activate his diaphragm with really good success in his oxygen recovery. We did personal breathing, which was a new technique for him. And now he has a breathing exercise that he can go to, to help pace with activity. Um, we practiced transfer techniques so that he could be successful at home without his prosthetic, if his prosthetic was no longer going to fit due to the increased weight gain, potentially from fluid overload. And then finally, we did pacing with activity to determine the level of oxygen that he was going to require for the short term, and then things to think about long term. And I did educate him on pulmonary rehab or cardiac rehab, pending what his end diagnosis was going to be. Either would be beneficial for him. Um, for me, I think pulmonary rehab would probably be a better fit because he does need the education on breathing exercises, and it tends to be more catered to dyspnea with exertion versus target heart rate. And for this patient, utilizing RPD and RPE scale is probably going to be more beneficial because that's his limiting factor. So this was an acute care patient. I was with him for 
nearly an hour. Uh, this is probably one of my longer sessions. But when you are providing education, skill, when you're when you're giving the patient tools to utilize in their own life to then progress further, and you might only get to see them one time, I think it's super important to set that person up for success. And so I really enjoyed this uh, patient. He, he was great. He was, he was into it. He wanted to learn and he was willing. He was willing to do all the things. Um, and he was really appreciative at the end. So sometimes you need some of the reminders of why you love the thing that you love so much. Um, and also the ability to then impact that person to your ability. So I hope that was helpful. I'm going to try to add a couple of these cases, maybe once a week, maybe twice a month. Uh, haven't really decided yet, but if you like this format, if this was helpful for you, if you want me to go a little bit deeper onto the pathophys, or if you liked the setup that I did today, let me know because that's super helpful for me to know. If you have any questions about the specific case or um, any of the topics that we discussed today, please reach out to me on Instagram at allthingscardiopalm or shoot me a text and I'm going to give it to you real quick at 913-308-4494. Um, please reach out. If you enjoyed this episode, share it with a friend, drop me some stars or a review if you have the time. That's really all I got. So I hope you have a wonderful day. Whatever you have to do, I give you dirty.